This morning, I want to briefly speak to you about a, a wife and a mother, a husband and a father, a spiritual father, and the great master of the young, and a religious mother, reformer, and doctor of prayer. These four saints have had a major imp impact on my life, and I hope they will for you. These great four saints that span the centuries of the church are examples of not only heroic virtue and holiness, but they are examples of what God can do with human nature. It is through having a sacramental worldview, that is, looking through the lenses of the church to the world, and most importantly, living a sacramental life, that God gives us the grace, because God gives us the grace that perfects human nature. As St. Thomas Aquinas said in part one of his Summa Theologica, grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it. All four of these saints, by living their lives sacramentally and viewing the world through the lenses of the church, were able with God's grace to bring many souls to heaven and continue to do so even today. So our first saint, and they're, list, they're here on the podium in the front, our first saint is St. Teresa of Avila. She is known as the Doctor of Prayer. St. Teresa was born on March 28, 1515. At a very young age, she loved reading about the lives of the saints with her younger brother. They both loved the martyrs so much that they left in secret at a young age of seven to enter the land of the Moors in hopes to die for Jesus Christ. However, before they could get there, their uncle met them and brought them home to their very upset mother. Now you'll notice with the saints, the saints read the lives of the saints that come before them. So like we read the lives of the saints today, so many of the saints, so this is 1515 and she's reading about the saints before her. Now we're reading about her and the other saints that I'm presenting. She was not allowed by her father at first to enter religious life. However, after entering a religious life, she became very sick and was removed by her father. Although she prayed when she was struggling in health, she did not pray when she was healed. Sounds familiar. We pray to God when we need something, when we want it badly, and then we forget to thank God for those, for those prayers when they're answered. After speaking to a Dominican friar, her father's confessor, she was warned that her prayer life was struggling. Instantly, she returned to her prayer life and would never abandon, would never abandon it again. She began devotions to two great penitent saints, St. Augustine, and one that's very close to all of our hearts here, St. Mary Magdalene. On different occasions, she had encounters with our Lord, but fearing what these meant kept them in secret. Jesus actually appeared to St. Teresa of Avila. She actually had conversations with him. A lot of the saints, uh, because of their, their great holiness and their great prayer life, ended up having uh, conversion, uh, conversations with either Jesus himself or the Blessed Mother. These heavenly conversations purified her soul and gave her a very humble heart. After being a Carmelite nun for nearly 25 years, St. Teresa took on her greatest challenge yet. The Carmelites had lost their great austerity and enthusiasm by the early 16th century. Many of the nuns of her time entered the convent for a relaxed life. They did not live up to their professions and, often, and were often found socializing with the townspeople instead of praying or doing their daily work. She began her reform of the Carmelites and ended, up and ended up being the foundress of the Discalced Carmelites. Discalced means shoeless. 
which means they wore more of a, they weren't actually shoeless, they wore more of a sandal, kind of a hard sandal than an actual more comfortable shoe of the time. So they actually wore, you know, we think sandals nowadays are somewhat comfortable, but you know, in the, in the fifth, 16th century, sandals were hard, they were rough, and they were, and they were, and it was, you know, it was a hard shoe to walk in. And that's what her, to bring them back to an austere life, that's what she put on their feet. Although her movement, to the, her movement to the reform of the Carmelite order was approved by the Catholic Church, she was met with violent opposition from her fellow nuns, the nobility, the magistrates, and the people of Avila. They did not want the reform. They wanted life as it was. These are religious, these are religious sisters. And the people that were friends with these religious sisters, they wanted comfort. They didn't want the hard, sacrificial life uh, that it is to be a religious sister. She was constantly encouraged by a Dominican friar to take on this, gun, this gut-wrenching endeavor because it needed to be done. And you'll see, if you ever look at church history, church history will show you that the reform of different orders has happened numerous times throughout church history. You know, we're in kind of a, a reform period right now or a renewal period right now in the church with Pope Francis. This is nothing new. People make a big deal out of it and say, oh, it's the reforms, you know, and especially the, the mainstream media thinks this happens, the first, this has happened, this is the only time it's ever happened. But none of them take the care to, to look at church history and say, you know, this is 500 years ago. There were reforms that were happening 1,000, 1,200 years ago. So reform and renewal in the church is nothing new. We should not be afraid of it. St. Teresa received many great talents from God. She had a calm and beautiful personality that resounded from the tenderness of her heart. She had a great understanding of people and how they interacted with one another. She had a mature wit and intelligence that was known by many. When choosing novices for her convents, she wanted them first to have intelligence and good judgment. Although piety was important, she believed that piety could be trained. She did not want her novices checking their reason at the door. She wanted them to be intelligent, to understand the faith in an intelligent way. That's for us today, too. As Catholics, we don't check our reason at the door. God gave us intellect for us to understand the, the mysteries of the church, but to also have devotions as well. Our faith in theology is really heart and, it's heart and mind. Understood philosophically, it's understood as faith and reason. That we, we have faith, and we also, but we also take that faith and understand it with reason and intelligence. She wrote many books. She wrote The Interior Castle, The Way of Perfection, The Book of Her Life, and Foundations, which was a guide on how to live religiously for her nuns. And, many, and, and she wrote many other books. There's so many. She's got a meditation on the Song of Songs. St. Teresa entered heavenly glory on October 4th, 1582. In 1622, Pope Gregory XV canonized her a saint of the church, and in 1970, she was declared a doctor of the church by Pope Paul VI. I'll give you just one quote from her, and this is, for teen, this is to parents of teenagers. So think of what teenagers are like. So if, you have, if you've had teenagers, if you're going to have teenagers, 
okay, or you're a teacher and you've taught teenagers. I was a, I was a high school teacher for six years. I know, what, I know what this is like. This is what she says. If I should give advice, I would tell parents that when their children are at this age, they ought to be very careful about whom their children associate with. For here lies the root of great evil, since our natural bent is toward the worst rather than toward the best. She is the doctor of prayer. She struggled with her prayer life. We all struggle with our prayer lives. We all don't, we, our prayer life is never where we want it to truly be. She struggled with prayer, and, and now that's now, would she say, I should be the doctor of prayer? No, that's a title that the church gives her. Two things on prayer. She says, prayer is simply a conversation with God. Prayer is simply a conversation with God. You converse with God like you have a conversation with a friend. The other great quote I like of hers is that she said, prayer, people that don't pray are like people who don't use their hands or feet. Think about that, not using your hands or feet. So that's how important prayer is, and that's how important prayer is in the life of her life and in the life of the church. I encourage you to uh, Google, search out stuff about St. Teresa of Avila. You will be, you'll, you'll, you'll be um, amazed at what, you've, what you'll find. Saint number two is now St. John Bosco. St. John Bosco was born in 1815 and was raised by his saintly mother whose name was Margaret, and she would play an integral role in his life from his birth to to the day she died. From a very early age, Don Bosco knew what his life vocation would be, even though others made fun of him. He had a dream where he was in a field with a crowd of children. The children started cursing and misbehaving. John jumped into the crowd to try to stop them by fighting and shouting with them. Suddenly, a man with a face filled with light appeared dressed in a white flowing mantle. The man called John over and made him leader of the boys. John was stunned at being put in charge of this unruly gang. The man said, you will have to win these friends of yours, not with blows, but with gentleness and kindness. You have to do it softly. You have to win them softly. He replied to the man, I'm just a boy. How can you order me to do something that looks impossible? The man answered, What seems so impossible you must achieve by being obedient and acquiring knowledge. Then the boys turned into wild animals, like the ones they were acting like. The man told John that this is the field of John's life work. Once John changed and grew in humility, faithfulness, and strength, he would see a change in the children a change that the man now demonstrated. The wild animals suddenly turned into gentle lambs. At the age of 16, St. John Bosco entered seminary with really nothing but the clothes on his back, which were, which were provided by the people in his own town. He wanted to be a missionary. Now his wanting to be a missionary will play an integral role, integral role in what we'll see come, of, come about here shortly. So he wants to be a missionary in a foreign land. But St. Joseph Cafasso, a superior of his at the time, told him to unpack his trunk and go continue his work with the poor boys of the city. Don Cafasso said that nothing else is God's will for you. That and nothing else is God's work for you, is to work with boys. 
Now, I'm going to say Don Bosco from time to time. Don is a term for father. Okay, we call him like Don Schmid or Don Axline. Okay, that's, what, that's the word. It just meant father at, at the time in Italy. As his priestly ministry grew, so did his flock continue to grow from the original 30 or 40 boys that he began with. He opened up a tailor shop, a printing press, and other workshops. He also taught classes on grammar and on Latin. He asked St. Francis de Sales to be his intercessor. He had a great devotion to St. Francis de Sales, another, another teacher, another doctor of the church. By 1856, he had 150 boys under his care. He is, or was, the master of youth. As a teacher, I would go to him quite a bit because of being in the high school classroom, and I taught at a school in Austin that was named St. Dominic Savio, and St. Dominic Savio was one of his boys. So for me, Savio, for Bosco and Savio play a huge role as a teacher. So if you're a teacher or if you know people that are teachers, these are good saints. This is a great saint to go to. In 1859, with 22 companions, Don Bosco founded a religious congregation and named it the Salesians. It was named after his patron, St. Francis de Sales. Within four years of the founding, there were 39 Salesians. At, at, at Don Bosco's death, there were 768 Salesians. The Salesians spread throughout the old and new world where 38 houses opened in his lifetime. He also founded an order of Salesian sisters whose sole purpose was the education of young women. This order spread just as fast as the Salesian order for men. When something is of God and something is fruitful, it will grow rapidly. We see this with a lot of religious orders that are popping up nowadays that are faithful to the church, that are faithful to the magisterium, that are faithful to the gospel message. So many young religious orders the one I could think of is the Dominican Sisters Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, who we have them here in Phoenix at St. Mary's High School and St. Thomas the Apostle. They started in 1997 with four. Now they've got about 130. The average age is 28. So they're exploding. It's fruitful, faithful to the magisterium. He had a great devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, especially under her title of Our Lady Help of Christians. The church that he is in, he's, he's an incorruptible. So he's, when you go to Turin, you go to Our Lady Help of Christians, and you can see St. John Bosco present there. And that church is Our Lady Help of Christians. Although he built that church, he was a master builder in the sense that he could plan and raise money very easily. He built quite a few churches in his time and often asked the Blessed Mother for guidance and prayers under that title. As desperate at times were when corners were tight, the financial support that he needed always came through. And there's stories where, and there's one story after another where these churches where a pastor was having a hard time raising money for the church and they would go to him and he'd go to Our Lady and then within a matter of weeks, they'd have the, all the money to build the church. So, you know, he is a, a great supporter for, for us. We could pray to him as well as we continue to build here at St. Mary Magdalene. He died a joyful death on January 31st, 1888. 40,000 people viewed his body at his death. 
You can still view his body, as I said today, in Turin, Italy. He was canonized a saint in 1934. A few of his sayings are, and he's got quite a few too, the saints are kind of like that. They have a lot of sayings. A few of his sayings are, to parents, he says, without confidence and love, there could be no true education. If you want to be loved, you must love yourselves and make your children feel that you love them. You know, saying, he used to say to parents, tell your children that you love them every day and tell them multiple times a day. Tell them to the point where, you get, where they get sick of hearing you. You know, where you need to love them, hold them, kiss them. You know, that they need that as children. To the youth under his care, this is what he would say to the youth. Do not put off till tomorrow the good you can do today. You may not have a tomorrow. And this one he takes from, from St. Philip Neri, who also was an educator and, and saint who worked with youth. Quote, run, jump, have all the fun you want at the right time, but for heaven's sake, do not commit sin. Third, our third saint is Blessed Karl of Austria. Yes, I said Blessed Karl of Austria. Now, before the talk, everyone was like, who's that third person on that, on that poster? Because we don't know who that is. Let me tell you a little bit about Blessed Karl, and then I'm going to tell you how he's connected to John Paul II. He's got a connection to Karol Wojtyla. Blessed Karl of Austria was born on August 17, 1887, in the country of Austria. The Imperial House of Austria rejoices in his birth, but the rest of the empire barely takes any notice, as the newest Archduke is far down the line of succession. It is not yet known that the series of tragedies and events will alter his destiny and that of the empire. One of those tragedies is World War I. Karl's childhood is simple and wholesome. He's tutored and attends school in Vienna. He is taught the Catholic faith and loves to practice it. He becomes known as a kind and compassionate child who, who performs various chores and tasks in effort to raise money to give to the poor and buy gifts for those around him. At the age of 16, Carl is commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Imperial Army. His father oversaw the army and soon Carl would over, oversee the army as well. Amongst his, amongst his fellow soldiers, he's known as an intelligent and thoughtful young man, someone who is total, totally loyal and dependable. He's an inspiration to his fellow soldiers and works, and works his way up to the ranks, earning various promotions. After courting his girl Zita for some time, he met Zita through a variety of uh, different uh, meetings, and when he started thinking about getting married as a young man, he wanted to, he was very interested in Zita. So he had family members that knew her, and then he asked them to put them kind of in the same place at the same time, some, very similar to our, our last saint and, and her, her husband. And he ends, up mar he ends up courting Zita. So Carl takes so they, they date for some time, they court for some time, and Carl takes her to the Marian Shrine, Marian Shrine of Mariazel, where he proposes to her in front of the Blessed Sacrament and places during her engagement ring, or places their engagement under the protection of the Blessed Virgin Mary. On the eve of their wedding, Carl tells his bride, quote, now we must help each other get to heaven. 
Their union is blessed with eight children. Their family and devotion to God are their first priorities, and they try to live a simple, quiet life while Carl continues his military career. On June 28, 1914, word is sent from Sarajevo that the heir apparent Archduke Ferdinand is assassinated. Archduke Ferdinand is, what, is really what started, really was the beginning of World War I. Making Carl the new heir apparent and changing his life forever. For Carl, the culture he bears is Christianity. In, and in the face of being in a war he considers immoral, he insists that he and the army must act immorally. So he did not want to be, you know, he did not, he, it was not his choice to be thrusted into this war but he said, if we're going to be in this war, then we're going, to act, we're going to act justly and we're going to act morally. On November 30th, 1916, he's made emperor. He faced many great challenges. Although Carl's attention is focused on peace throughout his reign, he's known as the emperor of peace, the emperor still has to wage war that is not of his making and care for all of his suffering people. Upon his ascension to the throne, he grants a general amnesty. Civilly, he organizes soup kinships for his people. He uses the palace's horses and carriages to deliver coal to his people. He fights against financial corruption and just corruption in general in the government and gives away his personal wealth, distributing alms beyond his means. He is the first world leader to establish a ministry of social welfare. And he established it for the gamut, for the young to the old. And it was meant for once people, it was, it was meant for if you needed the help, you needed the help. But once you were able to work yourself, then you weren't to be on the welfare anymore. Spiritually, he says, Emperor Carl, Emperor Carl shares in the same privations as his people and orders the palace to observe food rationing and smaller portions. He invokes the name of God in all decrees and governmental acts. He creates a Catholic press and plans the building of more churches in Vienna to serve the growing needs of the faithful. Once the war was over, he was asked to give up his throne, but he refuses, stating that his crown is a sacred trust from God, and he will never betray God, his subjects, or his dynastic inheritance. When he realizes later in life, and when I say later in life, I mean at the age of 34, okay? So when he realizes that he's on his deathbed, he calls his son the Archduke Otto. Now, Otto's the, old, the oldest of the children. Actually, Otto was involved, and I don't know if he still is, but the Austrian government into, I believe, the early 21st century, well, we are still in the early 21st century, but when we, when the, in the, around the year 2000, but even in the 90s and the 80s, Archduke Otto was involved with the Austrian government. So he was still, the son was still involved in the government uh, up until 20 years ago. When he realizes he's dying, he calls his son to his bed bedside to say goodbye. And he says to him, I want you to see how a, how a Catholic and an emperor conducts himself when dying. He dies in exile because eventually they exile him. They send him off, I think, uh, off to Switzerland. He dies in his wife's arms 
while reciting the name of Jesus and holding her crucif- and holding her crucifix. She, his wife, is also known as Venerable Zeta. So he's still blessed. So it means he's still in the canonization process. His wife is also in the canonization process as well. Later in life, she ends up moving to the United States and ends up moving to up, upstate New York uh, to live with uh, some religious sisters that she knew that I think that were based in Austria at the time. A great, holy lay person. I mean, here's, here's a father who showed his children how to die, how to properly die at the age of 34. I think they got married, I, think, I believe, when they were 20. So in 14 years, they had eight children. Uh, a, a good lay faithful uh, Catholic who is faithful to the church and, and, you know, acts with virtue, acts with justice, and loves his people. Now, I said to you, he had a connection to John Paul II. When he was the head of the military, at this time in Austria, Poland, the Polish men served in this army. The army kind of overlapped the borders at the time. And Karl was the head of the army. John Paul II, his name before John Paul II was Karol Wojtyła. His father served in the military under Emperor Karl. JP2's father loved the emperor so much that he named his last son, Karol, after Karl of Austria. Oh, I get goosebumps when I think about it. It's kind of cool. And it was John Paul II who made him a blessing. So think about that. Yeah, I mean, this is how the lives of the saints are all connected. Our last saint is St. Gianna Beretta Mola. Now, I had never heard of St. Gianna Beretta Mola up until about five or six years ago when a friend of mine who is a nurse practitioner a good friend of mine who I went to, uh, went to my undergrad years with at the University of San Francisco, she turned me on to her. Her and her husband told me about her because they named their first daughter Gianna. Now, my girlfriend, Tara, her oldest is Gianna as well, named after St. Gianna Beretta Mola. St. Gianna was born on October 4th, 1922, the feast of St. Francis of Assisi outside of Milan, Italy. She was one of 13 children born by Maria Beretta. Although three children died from the Spanish flu and two others died very young, she comes from a powerhouse. She was a doctor. The brother was a doctor. They had sisters that were in religious life. They had brothers that were priests. Uh, One of them was an engineer, okay? Whatever the parents were, whatever whatever was in the water outside of Milan, it it was producing some serious, you know, some serious vocations. Gianna received her first Holy Communion on April 4th, 1928, and in 1930, she received her first con- her, her confirmation. Even though she was very young from the day she first received her first Holy Communion, she went to Mass with her mother every day. She attended daily Mass her entire life. During her fifth year of secondary school, she went on a Jesuit retreat. It is here that her growth in the spiritual life began to go deeper. By walking through the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of of Loyola, she began to open her life to Christ and the Blessed Mother, seeking to do the will of God for her life. 
She wished to offer everything to Jesus, both sufferings and joys, to die rather than commit serious sin. And all she wanted to do was pray. During her time away from school, before she entered medical school, she joined, following her mother's example, the young girls of Catholic action. In her own words, Gianna said, quote, I make the holy resolution to do everything for Jesus. All my works, all my disappointments, I offer everything to Jesus, end quote. In the years to follow, she would return to school to finish her studies. She was already thinking that she wanted to be a missionary and to live the gospel to those who had never heard of it. She eventually became president of Catholic Action Women, where she guided young women in the faith. So just like St. John Bosco, we see another saint who wants to be a missionary. And this is going to come into play at the end of this talk when I talk about, about being a missionary. But she's... Um, but she couldn't be a missionary because if you look at some of her pictures, she was always just naturally frail. She always had just kind of a frail body. And being a missionary, you, they always wanted you to be, you know, kind of strong and healthy because of the difficult life that missionaries li leave, live in foreign lands. St. Gianna, along with her husband, Pietro, are exceptional examples of friendship, sacrificial love, and holiness. In an age that seeks to destroy sacrificial love and the beauty of marriage between a man and a woman, this couple is a shining light of God's grace and holiness that everyone, either married or single, should see as the perfect example of what it is to love another before yourself. Now I'm leaving some, some information out about her life, and it's my hope that today, after with, with all of these saints, that you'll go and do your own search on them as well, okay? The beauty of Google is you could put any of these saints' names in and, you know, pages will come up uh, on, their, on their lives. So I'm kind of giving you a, kind of a, a short version. I, I could go on for, for, I could speak probably on Teresa of Avila for three hours, but I don't think you want to sit through that. Maybe you do, but not today. So, um, but I mean, there's a lot on the saints. That's the beauty of the saints. There's so much that their lives give us. So, to get back to St. Gianna, her husband and her, after they met, they wrote letters back and forth, which is something that's been a dying, you know, it's, we don't do that anymore. We don't write letters to our loved ones, especially, you know, spouses. My girlfriend's been saying to me, why don't you, why don't you write a letter to me, like, like Pietro, so I, I have to get on it. So, um, <laughs> but, because I haven't done it yet, so, um, you know, and she, you know, she knows this story because her daughter's named after St. Gianna. Um, so these are kind of, these are some excerpts from the letters that they wrote to one another, but also some, just some quotes uh, from the books that were written. And there's, right now, there's two books on her life. If you just am, you Google or Amazon books on St. Gianna Beretta Mola, they come, they'll come up. So here are some quotes. This is from Pietro, her husband. Now, she dies at a young age. She dies eventually, and I'll get to that. She dies at the age of 39, uh, very, very young, and I'll explain why. Uh, but her husband, Pietro, just died recently, within the last three or four years. He, li he lived to be the age of 92 or 93. This is what he says about Gianna. I first saw Gianna for the first time in 1950. Later, he would say he remembers meeting her in 1949. I was attracted to her. At dinner, we sat opposite of each other. From then on, I managed to find opportunities for us to meet. He says some more. 
I found her an extraordinarily transparent person, extraordinarily gracious. Her looks, her attitude, her eyes, her beauty made her very attractive. I understood that she was right for me, that I would like to be with her. So I had fallen, I had fallen in love, but I did not find the words to express my feelings. Thank God Gianna was more effusive, more open. In her first letter, she said, I want to make you happy and be what you desire, kind, understanding, and ready for the sacrifices that life will require. Now you are here whom I love, and I intend to give myself to you to form a truly Christian family. His response back to her is just as beautiful and engaging. He states, I've read your letter many times, and I have kissed it. I love you, my sweet Gianna. My heart is yours, and I want to form my family with you. Yeah. Okay, that says it right there. You, there's the, there, there is a book out there, I don't own it, on the love letters. They, it's been published where you can go back and forth. You, know, you see these letters where they go back and forth with one another. On September 24, 1955, they were married in front of family and friends. They knelt together before God, promising to remain faithful and to love each other for better or worse. Even though Pietro worked full-time and Gianna operated a demanding medical practice, the couple had four children. However, in the end, the fourth child would also take the life of St. Gianna. During the pregnancy of her fourth child, a tumor developed on her uterus. She, advised to have, she was advised to have an abortion to save her life, but instead, she chose to have the child. Being a doctor herself, she was fully aware of the dangers on her life, but chose the child's life over her own. She said, if it comes down to saving the life, save the child's life before mine. After giving birth to her fourth child, Gianna Emanuela, she had an attack and went into a coma. However, she did come out of it. After awaking from the first coma, the second she would never awake, she said to her husband, Pietro, I was already there, and do you know what I saw? They sent me down, they sent me, they sent me down here to suffer still because it is not right to come to the Lord without enough suffering. A few days after giving birth to her fourth child, she passed into eternal glory. St. Gianna Beretta Mola entered heavenly glory on April 28, 1962. Pope John Paul II beatified her and canonized her a saint in 2004. Her daughter, Gianna Emanuela, goes actually around the world to speak on the mother's behalf. You can request relics from her in Italy. There's also the National Shrine for St. Gianna Beretta Mola here in the United States. It's outside of Philadelphia. You can go there and, and see kind of, you know, the things that they brought from Italy. Um, when I was at Franciscan studying for my master's, some of the undergrads would go to Austria to study for a semester. And on their travels, they would often make it to their home. And at times, often Gianna would come out of the home, out of the, out of the family home. Up until his death, Pietro from time to time would also come out and speak with the students as well. And he, like I said, he just died recently at the age of 92 or 93. 
She is also a great saint for the pro-life movement. She is the saint that a lot of pro-lifers look to and reach, to, reach towards because she gave up her life instead of having abortion. She knew the dangers. You know, the doctors, her brother was a doctor. He was involved in the, in the decision process. But being a medical doctor, she knew the dangers. And she said, take, that, take, take my life, save the life of the child, take my life instead of, you know, take the, the child's life, let the child live instead of me. So really for the pro-life movement, she has become one of the premier saints uh, in this fight against abortion that we, that we have in our country and in our world. Um, you know, and she's also one of those moms, one of those saints you could go to for pregnant mothers as well, um, for a safe pregnancy, for a healthy pregnancy. Saint Gerard Magella, who's a redemptorist priest, is also the, really considered the patron saint of pregnant mothers, uh, but, um, but she's become that as well. So what do we take from these four saints? What are the things that stick out to us for these four saints? Well, Saint Teresa of Avila, we see endurance. We see faith and trusting in God. We see zeal for the Lord. We see humility. And especially, we see prayer. She struggled in her prayer life, and now she's the doctor of prayer. I mean, I'd encourage you to go and read the stuff that she says on prayer. It's amazing. Her, you know, the way of perfection is a, is the, her book, The Way of Perfection, is really a lot of her thoughts and her theology on prayer. She had to endure suffering when nuns, people were against her. She had to, uh, you know, she, was, she trusted in God and she was humble through the whole process. I'm doing the Lord's work. This is what the Lord has called me to do. Even though I don't want to do it, maybe, we still do it. It's like the prophets in the Old Testament. None of those guys, those poor guys get just beat on all the time. And they don't want to do it. They don't want to be a part, you know, at, at times, you know, Jeremiah was a child. And you, and you, you're like, oh, do I have to do it? I mean, Hosea ends up marrying a prostitute to be an example for the Jews to say, just as my wife cheats on me, so you, Israel, cheat on God with other gods. So, you know, it's hard to be a prophet. It's hard to be a disciple for Jesus. It, it takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of prayer. And that's what we see with Teresa of Avila. St. John Bosco gives us patience. Oh, you got to have patience to work with children or to raise children. I mean, there's a lot of patience there. As a high school teacher, former high school teacher, I loved teaching high school. Loved it. Loved the high school classroom. Loved the whole high school environment. People are like, how do you do that? I substitute kindergarten one time, and one time was enough. Because <laughs> before I was a full-time teacher, I subbed K-12. And they put me in a, ki in a kindergarten class one time, and I was like, what? <laughs> Desks I could handle. But, you know, and I love kindergartners, and, and, uh, and my girlfriend's children are, are in kindergarten. Uh, her oldest is in kindergarten, but they're like little animals that look like humans. I mean, it is. God love them, okay? But you have to have patience, and that's what we get with St. John Bosco. We also, with him, love of children. And we're called to be missionaries. By our baptismal call, we're called to be missionaries. St. Francis, or not St. Francis, well, St. Francis said it, but so does Pope Francis. 
doesn't matter your intellectual level of the, of the faith. By your very baptism, we are called to be missionaries in the world. And that world doesn't mean going out to, be the, going out to the foreign missions. Your world are the people in this room, the people of this parish, your family, friends, your co-workers. That's where we're called to be missionaries. Even amongst the parish staff, each and every, each and every one of us on the staff is called to be missionaries to each other. So Bosco, even though he doesn't go out to be a missionary himself, he, find, you know, he founded a religious congregation of men and women that were missionaries. So we don't have to join religious life, and we don't have to go to Calcutta, India, but we can, do, we can be missionaries here amongst the community ourselves. If you have children or you're interested in you're a teacher or, or no teachers, um, he didn't write it, but it was written after his death, is The Educational Philosophy of St. John Bosco. It's a fantastic book, written, as I said, after his death. On many of his sayings, uh, they, they talk to priests that know him. Um, you can buy it. Amazon might have it, or just go in. If you go right to the Salesian Order, the Salesian website, they might have it as well. I've read, I've read it a few times. What do we learn from Blessed Carl of Astro? of Austria, Blessed Carl of Austria, how to live a life of virtue. Not just the cardinal virtues, but also the theological virtues. Faith, hope, and charity. He teaches us men how to be a Catholic man. How to die like a good Catholic man. How to be a good Catholic husband. How to be a good Catholic father. How to give of his time love his wife, love his children. He places others before himself. He gave his own wealth before he was emperor, and he gave his, his, his own wealth after he was emperor. And he also teaches us about the dignity of the human person. Even though he was faced with war, he loved the human person. He knew that they had to act morally. They had to act with justice. And that soldiers, you know... Uh, other things he did with soldiers, if, if they were, uh, you know, when they captured soldiers from the, you know, the other side, he, was, he said that they're, they're to be treated with dignity and respect. They're, they're our fellow human beings. We might disagree with them over what we're fighting for, but you will treat them with respect. You will not beat on them. You will not torture them. You will treat them as human beings. And lastly, St. Gianna Beretta Mola, we learned from her friendship. The friendship that she has as a young woman with her friends, but also the friendship that she has with her husband. Her husband becomes her best friend, as is often the case with spouses. They become each other's best friend. We learn self-sacrifice. There's nothing more self-sacrificial than what she does than gives up her own life and, the, and, the, and being sacrificial in her marriage. You know, do you think, you know, did you think she wanted to die at that age? Probably not, but it's, what, it's when God called her home. We see love of spouse and love of children. She loved her spouse and she loved her children. And with all four of these saints, we see holiness, which, another, which again, for all of us, we receive or we, 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 the, 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 the call of holiness starts with our baptism. All of these saints were holy. They all lived lives of holiness, and they all, 
stro- they all strove to be with Jesus. They're, they wanted to be Christ. I mean, uh, and it, you'll see that with all the saints. I would encourage you to, you know, read the lives of the saints. Um, so many of them died with the name of Jesus on their lips. The reason I chose these four saints, just to conclude, was I believe these were the demographics of our past, of our, of our parish. Um, you know, we have, a, we, have many, we have many mothers and fathers, husbands and wives. Um, in my opinion, it's not because I work, I work with them or for them, but we have two of the best young priests in the diocese. Um, I mean, and, and I'm friends with all the, a lot of the young priests, and I know the guys coming out of seminary. I mean, our guys are, 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 are theologically sound, and they are literally spiritual fathers. That's what they are. The way Father Will and Father Chris are with us in the office as staff members and with you as parishioners, they're spiritual fathers. They may not have their, children, their own children, and it doesn't matter if you're 15 years old or 85 years old, a priest is still your spiritual father. So I would, you know, and, and, and with Teresa of Avila, you know, she's the doctor of prayer. We all need more prayer in our life. We all need to focus on Jesus more in our life. So again, I thank you for coming today. I will take questions and uh, just study the saints. Know the saints. Live the saints. The one thing about the saints is they're just like us. Okay? Jesus, was, Jesus is God and was perfect. The Blessed Mother, even though she was even though she's a human being, was immaculately conceived without sin. But the saints, they're like us. We want to be like them. Read the lives of the saints. Don't be afraid to read the lives of the saints. Don't be afraid when people say to you, why do you pray to dead people? They're not dead. They're alive in heaven with Jesus, the Holy Trinity, and the Blessed Mother. Thank you.